WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Explosion. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and welcome. I'm your host, Stephen Rich, and this is Exposure. Tonight, we'll spend some time with the writer, director, and lead actor of the film Summerborn. Impact reporter Aaron Martinez brings us a report on problems some MSU students are experiencing at Spartan Stadium, and we'll talk with an artist featured at this year's Grand Rapids Art Prize. All this and more after the break. Again, I am Stephen Rich, and this is Impact 89FM. You are listening to Exposure. Last month, MSU alum Brett Miller premiered his film Some Are Born alongside the film's screenwriter and MSU professor Bill Vincent. The pair came into the Impact studio to discuss their film. All right, so just, I mean, to kick things off, do you guys mind just both introducing yourselves, um, your involvement in the film, and then just a little bit of background? We'll start with you. Sure. Okay, my name is Brett Miller. I directed the film Some Are Born. Um, I went to Michigan State. I graduated in the uh, spring of 2013. Um, I guess I, I sort of, I've been making little films here and there pretty much my whole life, as long as I can remember. I got a, an old camera when I was uh, in second or third grade, just a hand-me-down thing. Um, and it's sort of cliche, but that just sort of, is sort of how it happened. And um, I met Bill, and uh, we went forward you know, in a, a very short version of the story. We went forward, and we uh, made the film. So Very cool. And then Bill? Yeah, my name's Bill Vincent, and I teach film courses here at Michigan State. This is my 50th year here, um, which I think is punishment for sins in the past life. <laughs> and um, I started teaching screenwriting back in the 90s, probably around 92. And I have written several screenplays myself, and many of them have been made into very low-budget films. And Some Are Born is the latest one. Um, Brett, I've known since he was in the 11th grade, actually. He came, huh. his mother called and said, could he come to my class when he was making a campus visit? So I said yes. And then uh, he showed up a couple of years later. You're stuck much, with me now. Much to my horror, <laughs> but there he is, yeah. And so you guys have been working together ever since. Is this the first project you guys have worked on together? No. No, we've um, we've done a lot of shorts together, actually, and... One thing that I really liked when I was in school was I, you know, I had my, the, the classes, you know, that are required to graduate, but me and Bill kind of set up something with a couple other students where it was, we, we did independent studies with them and we, we had to write our own stories or use some of his if you, if, 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 if it fit and we would go forward and we would, you know, make those ourselves. And it was, it was a really good experience because it was, it wasn't a classroom with a teacher telling you, okay, this is when you have to have it done by. It was, okay, if we don't figure this out. You know, we got to figure this out ourselves. If we don't figure this out, we're not getting credit. And and so um, and we, really, we did a couple. It ahead. sounds like kind of like a top to bottom, too. You have to know every single part of making a film. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Learn every single part. Absolutely. Because, you know, you have such a, with projects like that, you have such a small crew. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, oftentimes I would have to direct, shoot, and edit. Was it a um, lot of learning by error? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so many, so many projects that just got either lost or 
didn't turn out nearly as good as you know we would have hoped for but i think that's i think that's important i think everything you do you every film no film is perfect so every film you you there's that one little thing like you know what i wish i'd done that better so i'll do that better next time mm. so but we yes we had you know go back to go back to your question we we had worked on many short films before um and uh, this was sort of the natural next progression and bill how how often have you been working with students in this independent study style of oh uh, a lot um it was more sort of structured with Brett, and that was thanks to Brett who sort of put it together. But we would meet every Thursday at the Peanut Barrel and um, and eat and talk about the projects and see where people were and so forth. Um, but yeah, I've worked on a lot of independent study films. Just got kind of guiding students along and helping. Yeah, and acting. They, whenever they need an old guy, they, mm. they ask me to be. <laughs> you were actually in my capstone project as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Which one was that? The 101, uh-huh. the pilot for the film student class. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what part did I do? Was that the one where I played the coach? You were the teacher, the kind yeah. of like the oh, yeah. older, out-of-it teacher. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well. You've played that role. You've played a similar role to that once or twice, huh? <laughs> um, but going back to Summer Born, I understand that you had been writing it for, for 15 years? Yeah, Did I probably, read that correctly? Probably 15 years is right. I'm not sure exactly. Um, it started out as a short film, mm. and uh, and I actually filmed that. Mm-hmm. And then was not satisfied with it particularly, but I also thought this could be a full-length film. So then I rewrote it and added material. Just over the course of those many years, off and on, yeah. And then it would go in the drawer, and then it got. Then I made it again as a full-length film, and um, the guy who was editing it, who had also played the lead, took it with him to Los Angeles when he went out there, <laughs> and then put it in his closet, and um, where it stayed um, for many years, and then sent it back to me. And some guy, an ex-student in Detroit said he'd like to edit it, but he edited it, but there were several scenes missing, blah, blah, blah. And then, so I showed what I had of that to Brett. And that's when Brett said, yeah, I really like that. I want to do it. So Mm. So it's done. (laughs) Finally, after all these years. So what specifically inspired you about the the script to want to direct it? Um, Well, a lot of things really inspired me about it. I think there's something to be said for um, sort of how the characters interact with each other, but also like I just love that classic story of of that change in a character and sort of bringing out either you know who he is or you know who he was all along, or is this like a new version of of his former self? And I thought that was that was the first thing that stuck out to me is how interesting it was because you you hear you know. Every person can, you know, relate in some aspect. You know, when you go to a new, li- you know, start almost like a new life when you go to college or when you get a new job or when you meet new people, and you know, was that the person you always were, or is that the person, you know, that just sort of happened, just sort of was, you know, formed through that experience? So I, I, that was the first thing that drew me to it. I also really liked the characters. Um, I liked that it wasn't a. It wasn't out of the re, you know, out of the realm of possibility to make. Like it wasn't like we were filming like a World War II movie, or you know, there were explosions and, and helicopters. And it was, it was like this is something we could do realistically. I know people are would would be interested in helping, and so th- those were the things that drew me to it initially. And when did you first start working on the film? When when did you take the first steps to creating it? Yeah, well, um, you know, Bill mentioned we we used to go to the Peanut Barrel every Thursday, and that was even when we weren't doing independent studies, that was just a normal staple. That was just a normal thing. Um, that we did 
And I remember leaving that one day and I had thought about it for about a week and I sort of brought it up like, you, you know, are you interested in this? And he said, I am, you know, I, yeah, let's, let's do it. And so I got home and I called my uh, producing partner. His name's Alex Rosenau. He's a lovely, lovely fellow. And I, um, I called him and that was in November of 2012 is when we first sort of said, okay, here we go. And I, uh, a couple of days later, I posted down a casting call and I started to slowly sort of quietly start to, you know, crew members who I knew would be would want to be involved and I knew could bring sort of the idea and the vision together. But I believe it was November of actually 2012 so when we were seniors in college. Mm. And um, with casting and with all your crew, is it a lot of MSU students or did you reach beyond to the community? Or Yeah, I mean, it, it's actually kind of funny because the idea was to look at it like a, just like it is, like a feature independent film. Like we, we were, it was very important to us not to look at it like a student film. Mm. So the idea was to go as far out as we possibly could, right? And a lot of our crew members, the old, the old intention was, because for me, a big part of filmmaking is your collaboration, how you work with others. And so what I learned more than anything at Michigan State was just how to work with people and who are people I wanted to work with in the future. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of, so I sort of took that. So a lot of the crew members are Michigan State people. They're people I, I worked on with films. They're people I did the capstone uh, film spe- specialization with. Um, these are people I know. These are people I trust. And, you know, they proved me right. And a lot of the... A lot of the actors are actually not Michigan State people, but there are a couple of Michigan State actors sprinkled in, and that wasn't intentional. They just were the best option. Mm-hmm. And then when it came down to to learning more about the people, they're like, yeah, we're students here too. It's like, oh. And um, we actually, it's actually kind of funny. Um, me and Bill tell this story a lot. I'll take it this time. But uh, when, when we cast uh, Casey James um, as the lead actor, we were actually having a little bit of trouble finding a, a lead that we wanted and i i had a couple people i'm like you know i think they could be all right um they fit but i'm not in love with them as actors and i was actually sleeping um when all the initial casting calls were already done we had spent like eight hours a day for like five days seeing a million people hmm. and he calls me and he just goes hey i'm down at dmat you know at, at michigan state's campus and i'm talking with casey and i, I had known casey but um met him briefly and he goes, yeah, I'm talking with Casey James. You should come hear this guy read. And I remember kind of moaning and being like, ah, well, I'm in my, I'm in my shorts. Here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, maybe that wasn't exactly the words, but probably something close to that. But I was, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I was out late the night before doing, you know, all kinds of college things. And <laughs> I, uh, but yeah, I, I rolled out of bed. I got down there and I'm glad I did because his audition was awesome. And it really, from then on, he was the guy to beat and he, you know, he killed it in the, mm-hmm. in the film itself. So we were very very thrilled, but yeah. So it, you know, to go all the way back, but yeah, there were some, there were more Michigan State students involved, than I think originally planned, mm-hmm. but it worked out well. It was just regard. kind of the the best of the people that you wanted. Some ended up being mm-hmm. MSU students, right? Yeah, cool. Well, um, just to give our audience a little bit of idea of the story, do you mind just briefly walking us through setting up the plot, um, what the story is about? Sure, um, I can do that. Sure. Um, if, or do you want to do that, Bill? Yeah, I'll do that. Sure. Um, it's the story of a young man, a freshman named Brian, who comes to Michigan State. He's very naive, uh, hasn't any real experience in life, uh, although he'd like to have more experience, but he hasn't had it because he's come from a small town in upstate Michigan. Uh, And he gets involved with this older couple, um, Carol and Marty, who are filmmakers, uh, and they invite him over to their place under the idea of working on a script together, but while he's there, they get him high, and then they seduce him, and um, 
essentially want him to start selling drugs for them to raise money for the next movie they're going to make. And he begins to do that, and then gradually he becomes more and more involved in drugs and sex and all that sort of stuff. And it's, so it's a story about corruption. Uh, and the question is, of course, as, as Brett said, is is the corruption something that comes from outside, or is it was it always there, just waiting to be set free, as it were? So your character kind of goes through a transformation throughout the movie. Yes. Mm. And so I got to ask, with with the plot being raising money to do a production of film, did you guys? Do you uh, sell a lot of drugs to raise money for the film? Yeah, we, we, and, we <laughs> and we made Brett sell his body, too. Yes, <laughs> yes, that was twice, and I deserved it. But, no, um, the uh, it's funny, because that actually was a joke on set. We're like, how ironic would it be if we actually sold drugs to make a movie about selling drugs to make a movie? Um, it <laughs> it would was, be too meta. It would be way too... I know, my head would blow up, I think. I, yeah, I, it's, it's, that is a funny joke, but... Um, um, in general, fundraising is never fun. So, you know, when it comes down mm. to, you know, actually how to go about it, you know, we had our jokes, but. The long process. Long process. Long yeah. process. Something I'm glad that I don't, that's not my, we, I have I have, I have, partners for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're good at it. Yeah. <laughs> so would you describe it as kind of a thriller, a horror, a cautionary tale? What would you say the plot or the, the genre of the movie is? I would say, um, it didn't. It, it it read a little more on the comedy side. It still has some comedic elements, but it's sort of. I guess it's more of a. It's it's a drama. It's certainly a drama. It, it has it has a lot of shades of um, neo noir. Um, I'm a big David Fincher fan, and I took a lot of um, inspiration from him and um, Steven Soderbergh, and they do a lot of those sort of uh, uh, films of that nature. But it does have a lot of comedic elements there's a lot of funny scenes there's a lot of jokes there's a lot of uh funny characters so there's there is there's definitely some comedy but it's a little more of a drama neo-noir mm-hmm. kind of deal call it a dark dramedy <laughs> yes there you go that fits. I'll, I'll take i'll give it that <laughs> um and back to kind of talking about the production of the film what what do you think was the the hardest part of getting this done was there ever a moment where you're kind of like oh my gosh like this is so much work is it really worth it yeah, um, that's a good question because there really wasn't one time where I was really nervous or frustrated. There's a lot of little things happen to where you think, "Oh crap!" Like this is not going to happen. You know, it was. It's hard to get permission. Is is really always it, it? It just comes down to that always being a problem. It's just getting permission from the right people. And we had we really we we tried. Like I said, we were treating this as you know a an independent feature film. Like we didn't want to say like, Oh, we're students. We we're naive. We can get away with anything. It's like, no, we need to go through all the right channels. So we, you know, we called the, the local authorities. We filmed in a few different cities and we had to make sure we called everyone. We had to get a permit for everything. And, and there were times, um, admit, you know, we, you know, I'm not saying anything bad about the university, but Michigan state was cautious in giving us permission to use some of the dormitories. Mm. It worked out and they were great. You know, we had a lot of help from uh, people involved. So I'm really happy about that. But, a lot of times it just literally comes down to just getting the right permission is just hard because it's easier for people to say no and just move on with their day than yeah. to say yes and then kind of help you through this. You know, it's just mm-hmm. so that's always tough. And then money is always hard, too, because, um, you know, you want to you want to be able to make sure everyone's not only like, you know, adequately paid, but fairly paid. And, and, and in a lot of smaller budgets, um, it's easier to 
sometimes it's easier to sort of figure out a way to just be like, okay, well, you can just kind of be an intern and come on. For, it's, you know, but it's, it's not really the right way to go about it. So money's always hard. And then logistics of locations and, and, and sort of the legality of films are, are tough. Mm-hmm. So. And you mentioned um, that Casey really fit his role. Did you guys have any, anyone else in the film that you really think stood out in their role really was a, a good fit? Yeah, you, I have one, but you can start, Bill. Well, I thought that the uh, the two that played the couple, Marty and Carol, were very, very good. Mm. Um, particularly, he uh, was so um, intense, so sort of dark. I mean, there was a darkness about him which was uh, which was totally appropriate. So, yeah. Yeah, he um, his name's Dominic Gabriel, and he uh, he's in Los Angeles right now. He uh, he's an excellent actor, and I um, we were very pleased with the performance he gave us. Um, Dana Blackstone plays Carol. She was very good as well. Mm-hmm. I there's a, my favorite scene in the film is actually with Casey and um, another Michigan State actress. Um, her name's Jennifer Ridley. She uh, they have an excellent scene at the end where she's sort of begging him to sort of come back to her, and Casey's just cold, you know, stone face. And it's it's such a good scene because you can just see the despair in her, you know, in her voice and her face. She's begging him. You know, and it's. I thought that was really good. So I was really happy with her performance as well. Um, so yeah, I thought for sure you were going to mention Trailer Park Tommy. But oh, that's that. right. Actually, I do have a little thing about Trailer Park Tommy. Bill here actually had a small role um, filmed for a scene. Um, as as he, like he said, the Trailer Park Tommy, and he's sort of the a um, an old Vietnam disgruntled Vietnam veteran who's in a wheelchair with a shotgun. And uh, he is sort of like a. I sell dope. He sells dope. <laughs> That's right. But he he sort of he played it really well. It was really he had this creepy crackly voice, and and I was very pleased with that. We also actually um, had M- Michigan State alumni Betsy Baker come out, um, and she was in the original Evil Dead with Sam Raimi mm-hmm. when they when they shot it, and uh, so it was really it was a treat to have her involved. Yeah, mm-hmm. she did. She was played a sleazy lawyer, and she was really good. Yep, surprising. And, and she's come out again to make another little film with us. So. Very cool. She's coming yeah. back to her roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. We're happy for it. And you were involved in the original Evil Dead, correct? You were was, kind of a yeah. mentor to the directors. No, I wouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> they were more like mentors to me. Uh, they knew more about filmmaking than I did. Oh, really? Without, I mean, Sam was a genius. Is a genius, mm-hmm. and. Uh, at 19, he knew pretty much everything there was to know about filmmaking. And so that's the first time you met Becky as well. Or, uh, Betsy, yeah. Betsy, right. Betsy, right. And then I hadn't seen her again for since the premiere of Evil Dead until she came to Michigan State three or four years ago now uh, when they did Evil Dead as a musical and mm-hmm. showed the Evil Dead movie, and then they had a panel discussion with her, and I was with her. And it was like we had just seen each other yesterday. It was a, our friendship just rekindled so we're very close friends now mm-hmm. so i was able to get her to come out for summer born and also for this new film the seer and maybe another one to come so very cool yeah <laughs> good to hear that everyone's making it back to their mm-hmm. roots yep. and so what what is your guys's response been from audience so far audience. it's actually been um extremely positive we've mm-hmm. we've gotten a lot of um positive reviews and, and we're sort of in a funny spot right now where we're trying not to have um, if we're showing the film, we're showing it for a reason. You know, we still we're trying to. It's it's sort of walking that fine line because we need to keep it a little exclusive because uh, distribution companies and film festivals they like that exclusivity. Mm-hmm. They like to be able to say like, "Come see the world premiere of Summer Born." They want to say that. Um, so whenever we show, whenever we have a screening, we had we had like a cast and crew and a and producer like um, premiere 
at uh, the Imagine Theater in Royal Oak, which was which was a really nice event. It was I think a lot of people responded well to that, and we've also had a couple of uh, just um, I guess university only campus screenings in a couple of different universities, and and so we haven't been able to sort of extremely publicly show it. But the people who have seen it, and you know, everyone's got their critiques. But in 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 and even with those critiques, been a lot of positive uh, feedback from a lot of different people, and that's and that's coming from both film, you know, I guess film people, and from just normal audience goers. Mm-hmm. So it's been good. It, good it has been. It has been. Yeah. Good to hear. And you mentioned uh, before we started recording that you're planning on to continue to try to find universities and stuff to go to, as well as a few festivals. Sure. Yeah. We um. Well, we we've so far we have filmed or we have shown the the film at um, Michigan State and then at Central Michigan University. We are talking with a couple other schools in the state about uh, future screenings, as well as a few schools outside of the state. Um, and they've they've shown interest as well. So that it it just it sort of is like. We have the present. Now we got to put on like the sexy ribbon and bow, or you know, and like in packaging and make it look as cool as it can. And that's what a lot of these these screenings will do. And because if we, because a film festival isn't gonna doesn't like if if they go on you know online, and they see one trailer and no reviews, and they they, they the Facebook page has five hundred likes, and they're just, it's just that doesn't look good for them. They don't want that. They want they want to they want to know that people are gonna see this film because mm-hmm. it's an investment for them too. So the more we do this, we'd like to gain more and more of a positive response to where we look better and better for these festivals. Mm-hmm. And, you and know. just gaining a lot more interest. And Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really sounds like it. the work never stops for you guys. Never. <laughs> my God. <laughs> you finish the film and there's still so much oh, more to do. Oh, God, yeah. Where we have a lot more. We, uh, we're taking it to uh, the film market in California mm-hmm. in November, and uh, we're hoping that will be... Can you describe what the film market is? Yeah, I can. It's So it's... It's it, it, there's 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 two big ones every year. There's one in um, Santa Monica, I believe, and it's uh, there's one in Santa Monica, and there's one in Berlin each year. And essentially, it's it's a place where filmmakers and distributors and uh, producers can meet where they otherwise wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Well, we wish you guys a lot of success there. Um, and as far as for the both of you, what kind of future plans can we look from you? Are you going to continue to work to work together? Are you moving to LA is anything happening what are you guys doing in, in the future I'm not moving to LA <laughs> um although I'd visit certainly happily uh I hope we'll go on working together we, I have another project in mind that I'd like to do and uh, I'd like Brett to do it but he's going to be a busy guy so mm-hmm. I'm a very busy guy but um so yeah I I uh as of now um I own and operate a company called Rumor Productions with my partners Victor Lord and Alex Rosnoff. Um, we're all Michigan State grads as well. Um, as of now, we I mean we don't have any plans to move to Los Angeles. We really like what's happening in Michigan right now. Um, we really like uh, the projects that are coming out. We really want to be a part of that. So that's sort of the initial plan right now. Uh, we are also we like as Bill Bill mentioned briefly earlier. We just shot a sh- we shot two short films. One that we were the forefront producers, and I directed a uh, film with Betsy Baker again called The Seer. Bill wrote it. It was kind of a fun little thing to go back and do. It took us, you know, a couple of days, and um, we're in the process of editing it right now, and hopefully that'll be ready to show soon. We also uh, helped with a film called The Cager, mm-hmm. which was directed by uh, Keenan Wetzel. Yeah, we actually talked to him on Exposure well, there you a couple go. months ago. Okay, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. I helped uh, Keenan. Keenan uh, had a really cool idea, and he had a really cool... He had a really cool concept that he wanted to, and I sort of came in. I helped him with the script a little bit. I helped him tighten it up. I helped him work on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, everything was already there and for, for, that he had written out. And 
Uh, he did an awesome job directing it, and I sort of was, was there with him on set, and uh, we helped him out in that regard. But we also, um, as far as feature films, we have, I mean, I have a, a ton of scripts that are, that are sort of there, but sort of our plan is we have two scripts that we really like and two ideas that we really like, and they each sort of fall on the complete opposite spectrum as far as funding. Like one, we're like, it's like, okay, if we had like $100,000 to make this movie, we'd make, you know, the, the best movie, you know, to come out of the state of Michigan in years. And the other side of the spectrum, we have another script that we're saying, like, if we had like 10 grand, we could make this movie. And I know we can make it well. So we're sort of, you know, we're trying to make sure both scripts are in a position to where we can move forward with them. But we also are like, if we go up to a producer and he says, yeah, you know, I love Summer Born. I'd love to fund your next film, but I can only afford to give you 30 grand. It's like, well, I'm glad you said that because we have a script that can be made for 30 grand. So it's sort of, that's sort of where our strategy is right now. And I mean, we're excited for it. We have a lot of projects on the horizon. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be fun. And 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 Bill can't escape us that easily. We're, we're, we don't plan on losing him, so. <laughs> OMG. <laughs> well, I'm actually glad that you brought up uh, production in Michigan because my, my final question to you guys is what do you see as the state of film in Michigan? What are... The advantages and where do you where would you like to see uh, Michigan film grow? Sure, um, I'll, I know I, I don't know a ton of a ton about the legislative um, aspect of it, but I do know that it's important for the state to sort of realize that Rome wasn't built in the day. And one of the issues with the the law right now is that it didn't it wasn't written in a position to give the incentive much of a chance. It didn't have, it was, I think it was two years mm-hmm. was like sort of that grace period where they were going to try and decide if they wanted to move forward with this. It's just not enough time. Mm-hmm. That's not enough time to build any industry. So I think the, the, what the state of Michigan is shooting for is they're shooting for their Batman versus Superman, mm-hmm. which of course is being filmed next door. But that's, that's sort of what they're hoping for, what they want. What they should be doing is they should be trying to have, instead of Batman and Superman, $100 million movie, they should be shooting for like 10, 10 million dollar movies kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So they have a bunch of, and that's how it sort of was back in, you know, when the first in film center was first brought to the forefront. Like that's sort of what it was. I mean, Scream 4 came, they didn't have a hundred million dollars, you know, with Scream 4, you know, they, they shot, uh, um, all sorts of films. I'm trying, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the one I'm thinking of with uh, Michael Sarah. Anyway, um, I think the biggest thing for the film incentive is for people to sort of be self-aware and, and, and to know that, you know, you can't expect anything, you know, to really change in such a short amount of period, you have to give it some time to show. And I think there's, and what's the good news is I, I've since graduating, I've, I've really tried to make an effort with my, with my partners of sort of being involved in sort of with a lot of other independent filmmakers in the state. And there's a lot of talent and there's a lot of really good people. So even if the incentive isn't what people might want, and even if the big Hollywood features aren't coming in, there's so much talent here that can be made you know, or that can be used to make, you know, really cool films. And we plan on, you know, keeping that alive as much as we can. So I think, I do think the incentive is going to need some work. And I hope that they see it, that the state sees it as, as a ne- you know, as necessity in a sense. But we'll, we'll, we're going to see, especially coming up with the election. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Thank you for, so much for being with us, guys. We've been talking with Brett Miller and Bill Vincent, who are the writer or the director and writer of the film Summer Born, which you can find at summerborn.com. You can find more info there. We're also going to include a link to that and their Facebook page on our website, impact89fm.org. So thank you guys so much for being with us. Thanks yes, for having thank me. Thank you.
You're listening to Exposure on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Stephen Rich, and today we are getting the chance to talk with Casey James, who is an MSU graduate and the lead actor in the film Summerborn. We talked earlier uh, with Bill Vincent and Brett Miller about the production, so we just wanted his side of it as well. So first of all, Casey, it's so good to talk to you again. It's so good to talk to you again, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, just so our, our listeners know, I actually worked with Casey on our production for my film Capstone um, last semester, so I got to know him pretty well, and he was our star as well, so it's <laughs> fitting that you're star in another production. Um, uh, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> so just to, but to give our listeners a little bit of background um, about you, um, just to start things off, can you tell us what you studied here at, at Michigan State? Uh, yeah, I was a, uh, a MSU a BFA in acting, um, so I studied theater um, and then specialized in acting itself. Uh, you can specialize in tech, and I chose acting. <laughs> and so um, when did you fir- when did your f- interest in acting first spark? Uh, back in high school. Um, mm-hmm. I, I started actually ninth grade, so that's technically junior high um, at the school that I went to, um, and uh, I, I just took a drama class on the side, and I ended up really liking it. Uh, kind of started off with comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, comedy was kind of my in. And then uh, once I once I got into it, uh, high school was kind of a joke for theater. Um, we we it was basically just a class you could joke around and, and act funny in. But then once I got to college, then it started getting much more serious. You know, I started sort of delving into the more dramatic aspects, and so now I'm kind of all over the board with what I want to do with it. And now, I I know you from your uh, work with like video acting. Um, but are you interested in theater and that sort of stuff as well, or is it basically just doing film and TV kind of stuff? Well, I have a a higher preference for film. That's why I'm not here in LA rather than New York. Um, but I, I'm not going to turn down theater. It's one of the actually the first gig I got out here. Um, it it was a theater gig, but it, it didn't end up working out. But um, but yeah, I'm I'm not opposed to theater at all. It's just a completely different animal. You know, it's a uh, uh, in, in ways, it's a little less realistic because you're up on stage screaming and whatnot. I kind of like the more intimate, mm. intimate aspect of film, but I'm I'm not opposed to either. Mm-hmm. And so, talking back about um, your time here at MSU, I know you did a lot of work, but were there any productions specifically that you remember doing here that really um, kind of helped you develop as an actor? Oh, um, well, the class. Um, my my drama class uh, specifically, we we took a class called drama, and it and it had a a, a really um, intense aspect of psychology. So it was kind of all about you know exploring your own demons and and kind of just putting everything out there so you can so you can you know get get into a different character's head and, and see how they tick. And that one really really influenced me the most. You know, it's 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 kind of rough too. You're you're standing up there in front of thirty people confessing some really dramatic stuff about yourself and. Um, but it, it, that one definitely helped me grow the most. But um, in terms of productions, uh, William Shakespeare's Land of the Dead, uh, that was last October that we did that. That was the most fun. And that, that's really what, what made me go, this is absolutely what I want to do with the rest of my life. Yeah. And well, one of the things, um, kind of going off of that, one of the things that I've, I've really kind of grown to learn about actors, you know, for the longest time, I didn't really see acting as like a, a, a really honestly hard thing to do. But when you're in oh, yeah, like yeah, a... <laughs> when you're in like a film setting or you're recording something, just watching someone be able to kind of turn it on is extremely challenging. Like, cause it's just such a, a lot of times it's not an environment where you'd expect someone to be, you know, rowdy or upset or excited or anything. It's very mellow atmosphere and just watching someone be able to turn that on. is just really impressive. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, that's kind of where theater and, and film differ so much, you know, theater, you, you get to go through the entire 
entire play. So the character starts off with one 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 emotion, and he just goes through this entire arc. Whereas with film, and for for instance, for Summer Born, we would say we we would film a, a a funny beginning scene, and then the next day we'd be filming something that's at the very end of the film, where I'm supposed to be in this completely different area. So, so you're right; it is it is a completely different different animal to just be able to, to turn it on, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's, that's kind of what I like about it. It's, it's it's a huge challenge, and yeah, sometimes it can be totally distracting, you know, having cameras in front of your face, and you know, there's somebody in lighting, and then there's somebody taking pictures in the background. So it's just sometimes it can be completely distracting. But you know, it's 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 all part of the game and so we heard a little bit earlier about what led you to summer born um kind of you were they were looking for a star they don't really have any luck and then uh i think bill was talking with you do you mind just elaborating what led you to being on or being a part of summer born yeah it was it was it was a really interesting thing um so my my roommate uh, Pat Bird, uh, him and i were were working on auditions for one of the short films that we were doing and um we we always threw Bill in there. Bill was Pat's professor, and and Bill was I was just just a great you know go to old guy for your film. Um, so he was at one of our auditions, and he was reading for us. And he just turned to me and he looked and he said, "Casey, what are you doing in May?" And I said, uh, "Nothing so far." You know, I worked for Insomnia Cookies at the time, so I was just planning on doing that. Um, and he, he so he said, oh, "I'm doing this film." And then he he explained Summer Born to me. Um, and then he called Brett Miller and, you know, told him to get us over there and we were going to, going to read some, read some of the sides. And so then Brett came over, we, we read some sides. I think Brett had somebody else in mind at first, but, um, you know, with, with, with my audition and Bill's persuasion, I think he, he landed on me because of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's how I got involved. It was just, it was so awesome. Cause I was like, holy crap, you know, I've been doing all these, these short films with my roommate and that's, that's fun experience, you know, but this was my first kind of experience doing a kind of a bigger film you know waking up every single day you have this this month and a half long schedule and it, it, it was awesome at first they tried to get it done in like 15 days and then that expanded but you know it was, it was my first big time project and i really loved being a part of it mm-hmm. it's funny that you say that you thought um brett had someone else in mind because uh his side of the story or his and bill's side of the story was brett was actually like sleeping that day when he got the call to come and yeah, like check you out and the only he he's made it sound like he was a little disgruntled about seeing you but as soon as he saw you do it he knew that you had to be the lead so <laughs> just funny yeah, that, each side that, of that. that is definitely good but yeah absolutely i heard the same thing from him over and over yeah i was sleeping and, <laughs> and bill called me and you know like I reluctantly came in, but I'm, I'm glad he did. <laughs> that was awesome. So um, your character in Summerborn, how would you describe him? Because we understand he goes through, you know, a bit of a change through, but how would you describe him as a person? Um, to be completely honest, naive. You know, he uh, he kind of grew up in this, this small town, and he was like a little goody-good, never, never, never really broke out of that, that goody-good behavior, and then he gets to college, and all of a sudden he's exposed to it, and the first thing he does is latches onto it. You know, he, he did a little bit of, of reluctance in the beginning, but then he just inevitably says, okay, you know, I'll, I'll get into it, and then he gets into it, and then he starts, you know, just, just going downhill from there and never really never really stops to pull himself out of it. So, so yeah, I think I think Brian was incredibly naive. Um, he's just easily influenced, too, but eventually he just becomes this kind of you know, drug lord type character, and that was that was a lot of fun to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, and uh, Bill talked about kind of 
uh, how he saw the character kind of moving towards, you know, a, a darker place. But one of the things he kind of wanted to leave questioned was this darkness always in his character or did it kind of develop throughout the filming process? So as the person acting as that character, do you see, did you always kind of feel that he had that darkness beneath him or was it a lot of these pressures that brought that out? I think I think it might have been a little bit of both. When I when I was when I was trying to tackle it and writing it out and figuring out you know what made him tick and stuff, uh, I, I was thinking you know maybe he's just always kind of had this secret little burning desire inside of him, but it was never something that oh, I want to be this evil drug man. You know he never really knew what it was going to flower into. But then with the pressures of Marty and Carol and and college and drugs and partying and all that stuff, I think that kind of just he decided that's what he thought this desire was and so he went with it and you know it wasn't wasn't necessarily the best path to choose but but he chose it and he stuck with it so mm-hmm. and um you said earlier but i i think i missed it how long was the actual filming process um it was it was i believe it was just a solid month maybe mm-hmm. maybe a little bit longer i said a month and a half for you know pre-meetings and stuff like that but yeah i think it was just a solid month and it, it was it was a lot, you know, everybody, you know, we're all, it was kind of a student production, even though everybody was mostly graduated, you know, it was a, just a, basically a huge learning experience. And so, you know, to, to try to cram that all into one month, it was a, it was a feat and, and they did it and it was, it turned out so well. So mm-hmm. I'm good for them, bro. And for you personally, what do you think was the most challenging part of the whole process? Challenging process, the most part, I think seems to just like, realizing this is this is what i'm going to be doing forever it, it wasn't necessarily challenging it was just a learning experience you know it was it was because i told you it was the it was the first time i i had really done something on that scale and it, it was it was kind of like okay this is what your life is going to be like so so tackling that and, and, and you know getting up every day going to the sometimes 16 hour shoots and so really, there wasn't a whole lot to make it challenging for me. I had an awesome crew, and everybody was so supportive. All the actors were great. I knew half of them. So it was just, it was overall just a usually great learning experience. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so glad for it. Yeah, and it, so it sounds like the most challenging part was realizing that you're going to be doing a lot of this for the rest of your life. Yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> and that wasn't even, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg, man. When you, you get out here and... Uh, to LA, and you realize that you're not going to be doing a whole lot of acting when you first get out here. It's, it's, you know, all right. What do you stereotype as? And right now, I'm getting, I'm getting a lot of the stoner, a lot of the, well, the hipster and stuff. So it's like you don't, you don't really get to delve into that, that deep acting that you just came out of at school. You, you just come out here and you kind of get, you know, they, they stereotype you, and that's what you get to do. <laughs> like uh, last week, I um. I got, I submitted for this thing on LA Casting. It was for a photo shoot for a calendar. And they, I drove up, they took a picture of me in my car, they gave me 50 bucks, and I drove away. <laughs> you know, you, there's just little things out here like that that makes you go, oh, so this is what I'm going to be doing for a while. But <laughs> the film itself, that's, that's hopefully what I'm going to be getting to. Yeah. And so uh, I think you said a little bit about it earlier, but how did you feel about the end result of the movie? Oh, it was awesome. It was awesome. You know, I didn't I didn't have any expectations high or low. I just knew that the process was going great and so if the process was going great I don't see why the film shouldn't turn out that way and it was awesome and, and the whole the whole, you know, the setup of the premiere and everybody was there and the red carpet it was all it was also wonderful. But the, the the solid film itself was great, you know. The the acting was awesome, the editing was awesome. I know those guys worked worked every day, all day on that thing and they, they did a really good job. I got I got to be a part of the process of seeing that. 
seeing that come to fruition was awesome. Mm-hmm. We're all really excited to see it uh, at the station as well. They're doing. They're, we talked a lot before about how they're doing kind of a limited release, so we're hoping to get um, some more info out for people who want to go see it. But now back to you personally. You did just. Or you mentioned you you just moved to sunny Hollywood, California. So what oh, are you? Yes. <laughs> first of all, how's the weather? I'm assuming a lot better than here. <laughs> Fantastic. It's 78 right now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yep. Actually, it's pretty no, warm. I'm missing that fall weather. I'm missing that fall weather so much right now. I mean, <laughs> y- yes, this weather's great, but you know, you, you don't get much of a changing of seasons around here. Yeah, so, so that's unfortunate. And what's what's been the biggest adjustment in moving to Hollywood? Oh crap, rent. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just you know, graduating from college from this little bubble of safety and security, and then. And you're being unleashed into the real world, and not only is it the real world, but it's Los Angeles, where where things just move ten times faster, and it's it's crazy. But yeah, the biggest adjustment's definitely been just finances and and realizing how much life actually costs out here. Um, but I mean, you're you're paying for the lack of winter, and I will pay thousands and thousands of dollars to never have to deal with a winter ever again. So I'm pretty happy. And um. Just as kind of a looking ahead to the future, what is what can we look for you in the future at, if you had got the ideal job? What would be the the best job you could get out there? A reoccur- reoccurring role in some penny dreadful like television show on HBO. You know, film film is awesome out here. It's in movies. It's you know it's inevitably where you want to end up, but the 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 TV is 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 where you get to even more character exploration and better paychecks and you know people get to fall more in love with your character because they get to feed over and over so mm-hmm. so a, a lead role in, in some type of horror television show is my ideal role you know but you, you, you take what you can get as soon as you get out here and then mm-hmm. you never know you never know how your dream's going to change and, and, and where life's going to take you so hopefully that is where I'll be I just did a, an episode of it's a show called Killer Kids on Lifetime Television. Wow. Um, it's like a reoccur, uh, uh, crime reenactment show, and so I, I do some murdering in that one. So that was fun. <laughs> Definitely sounds like it. And mm-hmm. Anything else in the near future that we can look for you in? Um, yeah, I'm doing a, a, an independent horror film called Bloodline. Uh, coming, it, we're filming in November, so maybe maybe you'll get, get wisps of that. You know, Google it, try to find out what's going on with it. Uh, I, I only have a little bit of information, but I will be playing yet another pothead, and it will be wonderful. <laughs> well, we'll definitely keep our, our eyes and ears open for you in the future. But we've been talking with Casey James, who is the lead actor in the film Some Are Born. So thank you so much again for talking with us, Casey. Thank you so much, sir. You're listening to WDBM Impact 89FM. This is Exposure, and I'm your host, Stephen Rich. Discrimination comes in many forms, from the more obvious to the subtle. A few weeks ago, Impact News Team reporter Aaron Martinez heard about some students who have not been able to fully be a part of the MSU football experience. After reaching out to university administration and athletics to understand the root of the problem, he brings us his report. Undoubtedly, college football remains a cornerstone of universities across America. Each season, almost 49 million people turn out to watch their team play. Here at Michigan State, our pride for our team runs deep. But under the banner of Spartans Stand Together, there's an entire population of Spartans unable to join in the student section celebrations due to varying physical disabilities. 
Right now, Spartan Stadium holds a capacity of 75,005 people, but of that seating, only three small sections exist throughout the stadium for people with handicaps. Two of these sections are opposite to the student section, located behind the goalposts on the other end of the stadium. Fed up with the lack of inclusion at the stadium, one student on campus is fighting to have her voice heard. I have cerebral palsy, so I use a wheelchair to get around on campus. Meet Katie Fair, a bright-eyed, ambitious advertising junior with a concentration in social media. Despite her mobility impairments, Katie has never found reason to slow down or dim her passions. She keeps active on campus as the current president for the Council of Students with Disabilities. Katie loves her school and clearly emanates Spartan pride, which is why it troubled her to find out about the current situation at Spartan Stadium. I was a transfer student, so I transferred here last fall, and I bought season tickets not knowing the student section wasn't accessible. Well, the athletic directors told me that there was currently no funding, so there was nothing that they could do at this time. And then RCPD told me that I should take it into like a bigger thing. The RCPD is the Resource Center for Persons with Disabilities at Michigan State. I'm a very determined person, so I kind of went off and did a campaign. And Katie did just that. This year, with the help of her colleagues in the Council of Students with Disabilities, she began an online crowdfunding campaign through GoFundMe.com to raise $2.2 million to renovate the student section seating to include interchangeable handicapped seating. Using a figure given to her by a university staffer, Katie set out on a mission to raise awareness to this problem on campus. Through Katie's determination, many are left wondering why it should be her responsibility to raise awareness on an issue which so clearly conflicts with MSU's aim to include all students. As Katie found in her search for answers, the university has accomplished more than $80 million worth of renovations to Spartan Stadium since 2003. In September of 2005, the university unveiled a major expansion to Spartan Stadium. At a cost of $64 million, this project created amenities such as 24 luxury seats, 800 club seats, an 18,000 square foot luxury concourse, and an increase of 3,000 seats, bringing the stadium to its current total number of seats. Additionally, this year, university athletic officials christened a brand new $24 million renovation to the stadium's locker rooms and press areas. To this station's knowledge, none of that money went towards handicapped seating improvements, and we haven't been able to get an answer as to why. In the past, when public places and businesses have faltered to meet the standards set by law, they've had to answer for it in federal court. In 2007, prominent Michigan attorney Richard Bernstein took his alma mater, the University of Michigan, to federal court on behalf of a veterans group challenging that the big house in Ann Arbor was not up to par with what's required under the Stadium Accessibility Section of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The Michigan Paralyzed Veterans of America were victorious in their legal battle once the Justice Department intervened on their behalf, because similarly to Michigan State, U of M spent millions upgrading their stadium's infrastructure and seating without addressing handicap accessibility. U of M was ordered by the court to make proper renovations to their stadium, which would bring them into compliance with what the law requires. But where exactly did all of this commotion over stadium seating come from? The United States Congress passed sweeping reforms for how various venues and public spaces should accommodate individuals with handicaps, as well as making discrimination against those individuals a federal offense. This legislation would become known as the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA. Through the years, this law has seen many changes in how it's enforced, but the overlying standard still exists that those with handicaps should be treated equally. Michigan State University administration offered few answers to questions about the seating situation at Spartan Stadium, 
but issued a statement through University ADA coordinator Paulette Gransberry-Russell, saying in part, quote, We are very aware that the student section situation is not ideal, although we believe it is lawful under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Our older stadium was built at a time during which the focus was not on things like accessible seating for students within the student section. MSU takes such matters as accessibility and accommodation for persons with disabilities seriously, as reflected in the work done within the classroom and outside the classroom with the assistance of the Resource Center for Disabilities." End quote. The university provided Impact News with supporting information regarding implementation of handicap accessibility, including information about the university's commissioned studies regarding barrier-free access, but nowhere in the information was there anything pertaining to Spartan Stadium. We asked the university about sections of the ADA pertaining to renovations and alterations which led to U of M's compliance, but as of this story, we have not heard back. Administration from Michigan State's athletic department refused to go on record for this story, however they maintain that they have nothing to hide, and there is no smoking gun. For students like Katie, the waiting game to be included will continue, but in the end, her goal remains the same. My hope is to bring awareness to disabilities around campus, because right now I feel like we're so small that if there was more awareness of us out there, people would be more receptive to dealing with us and working with us. After this is done, I hope students are able to sit in the student section. I don't see it happening during my two years that are left here, because obviously it's going to take a while to raise the money and then construct the student section, but I hope it inspires students to go through and follow their dreams and not be afraid to go for something. Look for us to continue monitoring this story as it develops. For more information, we've provided links to Katie's campaign's Facebook page and GoFundMe page on our website, impact89fm.org. Reporting for Impact News, I'm Aaron Martinez. This is WDBM Impact 89FM, and you are listening to Exposure with me, Stephen Rich. A few weeks ago, I got the chance to visit Grand Rapids Art Prize. Among the many amazing pieces throughout the city, Claire Rose Cleese's piece stuck in my mind days later. Through intense lines and limited color, she creates a surreal world on paper. She called in to talk about her artwork and her experiences as an artist. I had always um, really been interested in art, and my, my grandmother was a, a really um, talented oil painter. And so she kind of taught me a lot of oil and acrylic painting. Um, and my parents were really influential, too, of just very encouraging um, as far as me pursuing artwork and being really involved in it. Um, and so I constantly would just kind of create art even through high school and things like that um, as gifts, you know, or um, even commissioned, you know, my parents or a family friend would say, oh, we really want something created for this space in the house, you know, and so I'd make something for them. And it's just something I've always just really loved doing, and it's always been a consistent Um. So when, when right now, your main medium that you're working with, it's it's pen on that, uh, what, what kind of paper was that? Uh, it's a cotton rag paper, so it's, it's basically like a watercolor paper. So it's a really thick paper that has almost a soft, um, fibrous feel to it because of the cotton that's woven into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so it soaks up a lot of the ink, so you get a really great ink saturation mm-hmm. because of it. Um, it uses up a lot more ink, <laughs> but at the same time, um, it takes a lot more to make the illustration, but you also get, like, it, I feel like it's deeper and richer. 
color um, because that thick paper just really soaks it in yeah. through and the fibers. So, is this the the only medium that you really work with, or have you worked with other types of um, medium? Um, I have I have worked in acrylics, uh, but to be honest, um, I've just been primarily working in inks for the last year. Um, you know, I I liked other mediums, but all of a sudden when I found pen and ink, it was like the switch went on and I couldn't um, find enough time to create everything I even wanted to create because it just opened up all this, all these new doors for me. And it was just, um, just a whole new window. So that's kind of my, my main passion. <laughs> mm-hmm. And well, you mentioned before the interview that your, your education isn't in art. Um, do you mind talk, telling us a, yeah. a little bit about what brought you, you know, from what, what did you say your degree was in again? Um, so my degree was actually in geography and GIS systems, um, and then I minored in remote sensing imagery. So I mostly worked on mapping vegetation patterns mm. and um, using satellite imagery to map moisture or vegetation or animals or minerals and things like that. And but the thing was that I uh, and it kind of translates into my artwork a little bit is that. I always enjoyed doing that, but I still created art, and I always felt like maps were just like beautiful pieces of art. I loved all the fine topographic lines in it, and I can, that kind of translated into my style of artwork that I do right now. <laughs> yeah, you can really see that in a lot of your art is is a lot of like line bases, and you know, mm-hmm. I agree much like you'd see in a map of just kind of like all these traced patterns. And we we talked <laughs> briefly uh, when I was there, but you mentioned um, kind of being inspired by Iceland for your piece. Before talking about your inspiration, since we are a radio show, obviously our audience can't see it, but can you describe what this piece looks like a little bit? Yeah, no problem. So um, it's it's done in kind of a stark black and white um, pen and ink, and it's, it's kind of looking from a shoreline in, out to the sea. And so in Sejour means the sea in Icelandic. Um, and it's the waves rolling into a shoreline, and so you have, the white foam as it's getting closer to shore, kind of these spiraling tunnels as the waves are rolling. And then I have um, a girl in the right-hand corner, and her hair and skirt are kind of blowing in the wind, and then in her hand is a black string that she has tied to a large man-o'-war jellyfish. Um, and there's each tone highlighted in the jellyfish and then in the girl, too. Um, I kind of like to use those, like, one single color with the black and white, so I think it gives it a more bold um, look to it. And so she's kind of holding on to the jellyfish as it's flying like a kite, um, kind of in the same direction as the wind and the waves that are kind of flowing on the, on the image there. Yeah, and one of the things I like most about it when I first saw it was just the contrast between the really dark jellyfish and the darker waves, and then how much white space you had on, especially on the girl and some of the um, mm-hmm. foam from the waves, I guess is what, what you'd call it, but it would just really yeah. kind of popped out, because you were in the corner of a deli, so it's kind of like yeah. <laughs> walking over to see it, but it really just kind of popped out and drew you to the piece. Oh, good. Well, yeah, it was kind of a wall. <laughs> oh. Claire? Oh, where where the artwork was was kind of a, a busy wall and a busy deli, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, like I mentioned before, uh, you you when we were talking with you, you said that you were inspired by Iceland for the piece. Can you just elaborate on yeah. how how that how the images of Iceland kind of drew up this jellyfish and girl uh, that you drew? Yeah, so I had this idea in my mind um, 
of a, a girl with a jellyfish in her hand on the string, but I just wasn't um, ready, I guess, to start on it. And I had the thought in my mind, but I wasn't sure about the backdrop or anything. And um, so when I kind of was beginning to start on it and work on it, um, I listened to a lot of Cedar Ross, mm. uh, which is an Icelandic band. And I was kind of listening to them and kind of staring at my blank sheet of paper and I was like, okay, I really want to start working on this. And so I started in on a corner and the waves just seemed to make sense to me as, um, as I was putting there. Cause I kind of just started to draw actually the jellyfish first and the girl. And then I kind of stopped in the middle of that and started to draw the waves because, um, just the scenery of Iceland and then listening to the Icelandic music, it just kind of made me think of the sea and kind of that barren, dark-looking landscape, um, but at the same time, so much going on there. And so then I actually got a quarter way through it and then took a break and went back in and I had some different music on and I actually messed up and really didn't like the way the lines were going. And so I started all over all over from scratch and only listened to Cedar Ross when I made it. So <laughs> um, that was kind of how Iceland played into the whole the whole thing. I listen to a lot of music when I create my artwork, and mm-hmm. I think that it really influences it as well. Mm-hmm. With your artwork, are you often do you often kind of do this trial and error of having an idea, starting to build it, and then if it's veering off the wrong way, starting it again? Is that is that kind of your creative process? Yeah, um, just because generally um, I I kind of commit and I go in ten <laughs> first <laughs> off, and so. Um, and I, I can get a little particular when I get to a certain point and if it's just not going the way I want to go, you know, at times I've gone back and see, oh, well, if I can just adjust it a little bit with the ink, but a lot of times I think you're, you're kind of stuck with what you've got. So, um, I mean, I've actually had pieces in the past that I got completely done with and then there was just something that didn't seem right to me and I couldn't get over it. And so I just started over again. So. <laughs> I can be a little uh, meticulous sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, now moving more into just your experience with Art Prize in Grand Rapids, what was your impression of the event overall? Uh, It was wonderful. You know, this was my first Art Prize ever and my first time in Grand Rapids. And um, I was just blown away by the amount of community involvement and um, participation that just happens from the entire city. I've never seen anything quite like it before um you know i've been to art art shows and things like that but never one where it seems like in, this is a, in a, a city-wide mm-hmm. art show um just uh so many people that are so involved in the way the community gets involved um you know it was wonderful my first day there to just walk around and enjoy all the other artists there and see all the school kids that they bring out and just um, what it brings to the community was just, I mean, really inspirational and incredible to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea. <laughs> well, one of the things I was, I'm really curious about as an artist, um, because, you know, Art Prize does have a full city atmosphere. Some of the places that the art end up aren't exactly like art show places. Like, for example, yeah. like we said earlier, <laughs> you were kind of in the, in the corner of a deli. How do you feel about that kind of placement? Is it is it a little off-putting right away? Or is that, it, I, yeah. I just would really like your opinion I about mean, it. I mean, initially, you know, I wasn't sure what this would be when I was coming, you know, when I was coming out here to it. And um, so when I got here it was it was 
intimidating at first um, to just, you know, drive across the country and show up with my art and I'm in a deli and I don't really know. <laughs> um, and, and so initially I was worried. I said, oh, you know, I was worried that maybe not as many people would come to see my artwork or, you know, or to see all of us artists that were in, in the Grand um, in the Grand Central Deli and Market. And, um, but then once I was there for a full day and I saw a, so many people just trying to hit all the venues and they... Some people came in and didn't know there was artwork in there. They were just hungry and getting a good sandwich or soup. Um, and they were pleasantly, you know, they said, oh, my gosh, I didn't know there was art here. This is so wonderful. And then some people that it was on their list to go see. So, um, you know, it definitely exceeded my expectations, the amount of people I got to talk to and that came and looked at it. That um, just the exposure and everything that I got was really nice. And I guess I wasn't sure what to expect, um, but I was really just really pleased with the whole whole situation and where I was was a lot of fun. What do you think your plans are for the future? Are you going to continue to explore similar pieces in this same medium, or are you going to, you know, kind of expand your horizons and try different things? Um, you know, I, I'm going to continue working in this medium because it's something that I really enjoy. Um, but I also am I'm really interested in scrimshaw, the old, um, old sailors used to do it, but incorporating that style in um, with my kind of style of artwork, so kind of marrying the two together um, mm. to create kind of some new pieces in that way is something that I'm interested in exploring. Um, that used to be like scroll work and like engravings mm-hmm. um, that they used to do back in the day in like bone or ivory, but I'm kind of interested in doing it more in um, wood um, and kind of staining the dark wood and then scratching out in white kind of my same kind of style of illustrations, but done in maybe some little different materials, but still um, also working in the inks because I really enjoy that. Very cool. We've been talking with Claire Rose Cleese, who is an artist from Bozeman, Minnesota, or excuse me, Bozeman, Montana, whose piece Sior was featured at this year's art prize. And we'll provide a link to her website where you can find it on there. Um, her website, by the way, is ClaireRoseKDesigns.com but we'll also have that link on our website Impact89FM.org Thank you so much for talking with us Claire Thank you Thank you for joining us tonight. Special thanks to station manager Gabriela Saldivia and general manager Ed Glazer, as well as all our staff here at Impact 89FM. Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org and then just hit the exposure tab under talk. I'm your host, Stephen Rich, and we'll be back again next week at 7. You've been listening to Impact Exposure 89FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.